0: I would like to repeat that. Uh, Happy Mother's Day. God bless you mothers and God give you wisdom and patience and all the other things you need to carry out uh, the task of motherhood. Uh, But we we, uh, appreciate you and all that you do. It's good to see you all here this morning. You look marvelous, I must say. Look marvelous. I, I think that the uh, Padrishner uh, Traveling Award goes to Chad here. He's from Virginia. Uh, Chad, how are you doing? Did anyone go farther than Virginia? That, that's, that's You get the Commuter Award. Uh, what you get for that is absolutely nothing, but you get it nonetheless. Uh, we'll be taking questions, uh, hopefully, at the end of this message. So if you, as I'm going through this message, if you have questions that you'd like me to address, uh, just text that number right there. And uh, we'll try to get to a couple of those at the end of the service. And for you ADD folks who won't be able to concentrate unless I explain what my t-shirt's about, this is a drum set. This is a drum set. See, my wife got it for me because I'm a drummer. Some of you didn't know this, but I'm a drummer in a very famous band uh, of uh, a bunch of old guys, but we're not dead yet, and that's our name, not dead yet. So we rock the house. We're 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. And so uh, we'll be uh, playing at the shanty this week. Uh, this Friday, at the, it's Ogaris, uh in St. Paul. And uh, uh, we'll have a warm-up band, Danny Churchill, who's in our youth program, has a band. They'll play for an hour, starting at 8, and then we come out at 9, and we'll rock the house till uh, midnight. So if you like to have a lot of fun and uh, get, get going with it, show up, be part of that. All right. Oh, and then, uh, it's a fundraiser for kids in Haiti, so uh, you get to do some good in the process as well. So we're uh, going through this series that we're calling Tapestry. Because uh, we're looking at the tapestry that is the identity of, of Woodland Hills Church. What are we about? We don't fit neatly into any one category, so we're looking at the various threads of the Christian tradition that um, uh, go, go into making our identity, that form our tapestry. So we looked at our relationship to the church universal the first week, and then we looked at uh, the Protestant thread, and then we looked at the Wesleyan thread, and last week we looked at the charismatic thread. Um, and you maybe didn't notice it, but there's one little kid here. Did you see at the end of the singing, he rolled down the stairs here? And I was thinking, uh, dude, if you're going to be a holy roller, you should have come last week. He's <laughs> off by one week. Holy roller, charismatic, never mind. So this week and next week, we're going to be looking at the Anabaptist thread. So we're calling this the Anabaptist thread. Um, and we're dealing with, uh, with this in two weeks because, um, well, this is the tradition that most influences Woodland Hills Church. And I think... Uh, the stream that we most fit into, the Anabaptist tradition. The word Anabaptist simply means re-baptizer. Uh, it was the name that was given to them by their opponents, uh, who in the 16th century, everyone else baptized infants. But these folks believed that uh, baptism was for adults, as we'll see here in a little bit. And uh, so their opponents said, you're, you're baptizing twice, you're re-baptizing. Uh, it was a, a pejorative term, a negative term. Uh, but it stuck. So this is called the Anabaptist tradition. And we're going to outline some of the distinctive beliefs of these folks here uh, in a little bit. Let's start with a word of prayer. Abba, Father, uh, God, we ask that you would just come down right now in the power of your spirit and use this message, infuse this message with your authority to change us. God, for everyone in this auditorium, everyone listening through podcast, television, any other means, we pray, God, that you'd open our hearts and open our minds to really help us to be receptive, to internalize, this, this word. And Lord, give it the power of the kingdom to change us, to radicalize us, to revolutionize us, to transform us. Uh, God, for those of us who need it, to inspire us out of our lethargy. And uh, God, thank you for this wonderful tradition, the Anabaptist tradition. I pray, God, it would be uh, something that would be inspiring and motivational and transformational in our life. We surrender this message to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. Uh, As I have done with uh, most of the messages in the series, uh, there'll be a lot of scripture that'll be coming a little bit later on. I'll start by giving a little bit of background to this movement and talk about uh, a few characters, uh, the foundation of this movement. Uh, It's a fascinating uh, history if you ever want to get into it, studying the the early Anabaptists. But the early 16th century was was a really interesting uh, and kind of a tense time. Everybody in Europe was Catholic at this time, by law. Uh, But there's a lot of talk of reformation in the air all throughout Europe. And there's some uh, reforming movements that were beginning in the early part of the 16th century. Everyone knew about the corruption of the church. Everyone granted it. The church acknowledged it. Um, And there's uh, some uh, talk about reforming some of the doctrines of the church. Luther, uh, in 1517, we saw this a couple weeks ago, he nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, and that's kind of considered the, the, the inauguration of the Reformation. And when he did that, there was, it was like a, 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 an explosion. It was like putting a mask to a powder keg. There's an explosion of reforming ideas and reforming movements uh, that happened. 1520s were a really interesting time in Europe. Um, you have Luther and then Calvin added some to the Reformation. And then there's a lot of groups that went far beyond Luther and Calvin in terms of their Reformation ideas. And This is what's called the Radical Reformation. The Radical Reformation. And the Anabaptists that we're going to be looking at here the next two weeks are part of the Radical Reformation. Now, I want to be clear about this. There were uh, a number of groups that were part of the Radical Reformation that went way outside the parameters of orthodoxy. And so there are some groups who um, uh, rejected the, the, the deity of Christ and rejected the Trinity. Uh, these became the Unitarians that are still around to this day. There are some groups that were just wacko. I mean, some folks they were you know, getting apocalyptic and, and having visions of the end times, and uh, some folks got violent. It was, it was, it was some craziness going on. There's this one group that took over Münster, Germany, and uh, they, they thought that it was the end of the world, and so they declared Munster, Germany, to be the new Jerusalem. And they installed a king, they called him the second King David. And they practiced communism, and they uh, uh, reinstated polygamy. And this king was given 16 wives, lucky guy, all right. And, uh, uh, and it was just crazy. And they thought that God was going to use them uh, to bring about justice and righteousness in this world by slaying all the sinners, you know? And, uh, and the German authorities finally got a hold of it and came in and slaughtered all the leaders and it was a mess But there's some wacko groups out there and the reason I mentioned them is because If you read some history books, some scholars Groups like Munster, uh, the, the Munster crowd uh, and, and some of the Unitarians, they, bat, they baptized adults And so some scholars will group them under this label of Anabaptists I disagree with that way of categorizing things because Those heretical and wacko groups have absolutely nothing in common with the Anabaptist tradition that survives to this day. Uh, When I speak about the Anabaptists, I'm referring to a specific movement that came out of uh, this this period of time. Uh, The largest representation of it today are the Mennonites. The Mennonites are called that because they were followers of uh, Menno Simons, uh, who was one of the only Anabaptist leaders... Uh, who was able to escape uh, execution. Almost all of them were wiped out by the mid, mid-16th century. But he survived, and so the group was called the Mennonites. Uh, but there's other other uh, expressions of the Anabaptist tradition today as well. The Brethren in Christ, for example, um, the, the meeting house that we're in association with, uh, is part of the Brethren in Christ. They're Anabaptists. In fact, Bruxy will be here next week. He's the pastor. They remember him, the long-haired hippie, hippie guy. And he'll be talking next week, uh, giving the second part of this message. You want to come and Make sure you're listening on that. But that's what I mean by the Anabaptists. Uh, they were a group that, uh, uh, as we'll see here in a moment, uh, had some distinctive beliefs. They, were, they, were, they practiced nonviolence and some other beautiful distinctives. A great book, by the way, on this Anabaptist tradition is a book uh, called The Naked Anabaptist, uh, The Bare Essentials of a Radical Faith by Stuart Murray. I, I wrote the foreword to this what it is, it's an invitation to other groups to dialogue with the Anabaptist tradition. And you can really get a, uh, the flavor of the Anabaptist from, from this book. I actually would love if, if everyone who is, uh, calls Woodland Hills Church their home would read this book because it will give you a really kind of, kind of flavor of, of this tradition that is so much of a de- part of the identity of Woodland Hills Church. It's called the Naked Anabaptist because he's not trying to sell you anything. Uh, he, he, he puts forth the good aspects of this tradition, but he also shows the warts. Uh, because, like any other human tradition, it's, it's, it's human and it's got warts. But anyways, it's a good book to learn about the essentials of the radical faith. We're going to be looking at six of the distinctive beliefs and practices of the Anabaptist tradition that influenced Woodland Hills Church. I'll deal with four today, and then Bruxy will deal with the remaining two next week. But before I get to that, I want to tell a few stories. We've been kind of putting flesh and blood on, on these traditions that we've been looking at by, by just sharing a little story of some of their founders. So the first guy I want to talk about is Michael Sadler. When you read the, the uh, early hi- history of the Anabaptists, it's really an inspiring um, story. I mean, th- these folks were hated by everybody, and they were persecuted by everybody. Almost all of the leaders, as I said, were, were executed. But the heroism and the faith uh, and the way that they, they died, it was... It, it, it was like in the early church. The more they were persecuted, the, the, the faster the movement grew because they died wonderful deaths. They would bless their persecutors and their torturers rather than cursing them. Um, and, and it's just a, a, a very Christ-like way to live and a Christ-like way to die. So Michael Sadler was one of the leaders of the early Anabaptists. Uh, he was born in 1490 in Germany. He was always a spiritually uh, intense kind of guy, uh, intellectually hungry, always hungry for truth. He became a benedictine monk in St. Peter's Monastery in this part of Germany that's called the Black Forest. And because of his mind and his commitment, he rose very quickly in this monastery to becoming the prior of the monastery, which is second in command to the abbot. He's a young man, but he's rising very quickly. But also as he's studying the Bible for himself, he was kind of a free thinker. He didn't just believe things because he was told to believe them. And so as he's reading the Bible, he's starting to see some contradictions between what the Bible says and what he, as a Catholic priest, is teaching. is becoming very d- disgruntled by this. He hears about this Reformation going on up in Switzerland, in Zurich, Switzerland. These radical Anabaptists and some of the things they're teaching. And, and he finds some of it compelling. So in 1525, he leaves the monastery, goes up to uh, Zurich, Switzerland, to study with the Anabaptists. When he goes up there, two things happen. First, in 1526... Uh, he converts, becomes an Anabaptist. He's baptized and joins their fellowship. That happens right after they had passed a law in Zurich that uh, joining the Anabaptist crowd is punishable by death. At this time, uh, remember, uh, religion is a state matter. Uh, It's a matter of the law. And so to disagree with the state about what you believe is to be guilty of treason. And therefore, that can be punishable by death. But Michael Sadler, he believes it, and so even though there's not going to be a death warrant on him, he, he, he's baptized, becomes part of the, the Anabaptist tradition. Second thing that happens is he falls in love. He meets this beautiful young lady, Margretta. And um, she had also just come out of a, a Catholic uh, uh, religious community and had joined the Anabaptist uh, group and was a passionate believer in Christ. So they fall deeply in love and they get married very quickly. I suspect partly because they're now hunted heretics in Switzerland and your life expectancy goes, goes down considerably uh, when that's true. So who's got time for long courtships? Uh, we've got a little bit of time here on this earth. Let's uh, uh, get married quickly. So they, they get married, they fall passionately in love, blah, blah, blah. Then they go down to uh, uh, Germany southern Germany now, and become missionaries. Now, this is all within a span of a year. He goes from being in the monastery up to Switzerland, gets married, comes back, and now he's an Anabaptist evangelist and an Anabaptist preacher. Uh, He's wildly successful. successful. Uh, His reputation is spread abroad. The other Anabaptists see in him uh, a leader for this movement uh, because of his, his mind and his character. And uh, they asked him to head up a council in Switzerland uh, that would be held in, in Schleitheim, Switzerland. Uh, at this time, the Anabaptist movement, as it's growing, had no formal confession. There's no agreed upon faith. And they thought it would really help the movement if we were united around a common faith. And so they bring the leaders of the Anabaptists together in Schleitheim, Switzerland. And uh, Sattler composes what's called the Schleitheim Confession. And this is the first official document of the Anabaptist movement. It wasn't a creed because it wasn't mandatory, but it, was, it expressed what the Anabaptists believe and um, helped unite the movement. So for three years, he and Margretta are passionate evangelists uh, and are just reaching out to people. And, and even the, the, the folks who don't convert love these folks because of their character and their demeanor. But because they were so successful, they catch the eye of the authorities. And so uh, the the Catholic Church sends some authorities there to arrest Michael Sadler in 1529. They give him uh, a number of chances to recant, but he won't do it. He can't change what he believes because someone's threatening you with with, uh, death. And so they find him guilty of heresy and therefore guilty of treason and therefore sentence him to death. And because he's a big leader in this movement and this movement's growing quickly and they want to squash it, they say... We're not only going to put him to death, we've got to make an example out of him. We've got to put him to death in such a way that no one will ever want to become an Anabaptist again. So they take him to the middle of the town and command all the town to come out and watch this. And so with red-hot iron tongs, they rip out his tongue. And with those red-hot iron tongs, they flay his skin, parts of his body, rip off skin. uh, Just torturing him in the most unthinkable ways. Uh, his, His wife and some of the congregation come out and they cheer him on. Uh, to stand strong. And they're cheering him on as they then tie him to the stake and then set him on fire uh, and burn him alive at the stake. And they had some kind of a code way for him to acknowledge, just before he died, to let them know that he stood strong uh, up to the very end, and that he managed to continue to love his enemies rather than curse them up to the very end. And he succeeded in doing that. And his death, rather than, I mean, it certainly terrorized a lot of people. Uh, but it didn't stop the movement. In fact, the movement grew faster. Uh, the, the beautiful Christ-like way he died was a testimony, as it was in the early church. And so it actually helped spread the movement. Uh, the second guy I'll just talk about very briefly. His name is Dirk Willems. And he's a, a famous story of, of, uh, of an Anabaptist because he so embodies the spirit of the Anabaptist. This is the guy who converted to the Anabaptist uh, movement in the uh, uh, 1560s. So this is like 30 years later now. And uh, he, he lives in northern Netherlands, which is also under uh, the control of, of the Catholic Church. Uh, he becomes a passionate preacher and an evangelist. He turns his house into a church and, and uses it to have services and uh, to uh, baptize people. Uh, there is a, a law of the land that says if you're an Anabaptist, you'll be put to death. But he continue, there's, they, they do it as stealth as possible, but they still do it. Uh, and inevitably they get caught, and so he gets arrested. He's thrown into a castle that was turned into a prison for Anabaptists because the prisons were so overcrowded with other Anabaptists. They had to empty a castle out and turn it into a prison. So he's in prison, he's put on trial, he's sentenced to death. Somehow he manages to find these rags, and he ties these rags together, throws them out the window, and climbs down like on a rope to safety and runs for freedom. Unfortunately, a guard sees him, so his guard takes off chasing him. They come to a pond. Now, this is May 1569. And so a lot of the snow has melted and the ice is very thin. But uh, Dirk, who apparently is of a slender frame, he manages to run across the lake safely. But the guard in the middle of the lake all of a sudden falls through. And the guy can't swim. So he's screaming for help. Please save me. And Dirk, who could have gone on and have been free, he remembered what Jesus said about doing good to your enemies and blessing them. So he turns around and crawls on this thin ice, risking his own life, and saves this guy. And you would have thought this guard would have been so grateful would have let him go free, but he didn't. He rearrests him, brings him back to the castle, and Dirk is burned at the stake. But see, that's, that's the Anabaptists. They, 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 they just would love their enemies, and they refused to fight back. Um, and thousands were, were put to death. It is, to me, mind-boggling, just mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling, that these were other Christians putting these people to death in unthinkable ways. Um, and it wasn't just the Catholics. The Lutherans and the Calvinists killed as many Anabaptists as the Catholics did. And they did it in Jesus' name. If you read the, the documents that where they passed sentence on these folks, they're doing it in the name of, of Christ for the, the, the holy Christian faith. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. What's really mind-boggling is this. You know, The Anabaptists believed that, that faith had to be voluntary. Because if you think about it, it has to be. You can't genuinely believe something just because somebody says, if you don't believe it, I'm going to burn you at the stake. You can lie, but you can't genuinely decide that something's true just because you're threatened. And so they, they held that faith had to be not coerced They were against a state religion. Early on, Calvin and Luther were against it too. Because they were the radicals who were arguing against the Catholics, saying, we well, ought to be free to believe what we want to believe. But as soon as certain feudal lords gave them power, said, oh, okay, you can, this will be the religion of the land, they turn around and do the same thing, and make their faith the religion of the land, so they persecute the Anabaptists as much as the Catholics did. I think it's a testimony to how power corrupts, and throughout history we've seen this, where uh, as soon as Christians come into power, they start acting in very un-Christian ways. Uh, there's something that just it blinds us when, when, when we're given power, and... Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's why I, I get bugged when, when Christians today just think that it's all about grabbing some political power As though that's going to help things It always backfires uh, Christians always end up acting in, in non-Christian ways But that's for uh, a different message I've got to get on here Okay, let's go <laughs> Bruxy may talk about that next week, we'll see Okay, let's look at a few distinctives here The first one is one I can go over very quickly Because it's one we, we talk on every summer here when we have our baptisms But it's Believer's Baptism uh, they, the Anabaptists believe that it, since faith should be chosen, and baptism is an expression of faith, baptism should be chosen. That is, you should be old enough to choose it. Um, a key passage here is uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, 19, where uh, just before he ascends into heaven, Jesus gives the Great Commission. And he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. The Anabaptists noticed that the goal is to make disciples. And uh, you're going to baptize them. The the them refers to the disciples. Make disciples and then baptize those disciples. And then teach those disciples to obey all that Jesus has commanded. So they they came to the conclusion that uh, to be baptized you have to be old enough to be a disciple. Which has to be chosen. And you have to be old enough to be taught. And you have to be old enough to choose to obey. And that is, in fact, what you find throughout the New Testament, uh, at least as we interpret it. Uh, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says uh, to the crowd, when they ask, what should we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. Uh, the prerequisite is that you repent, you turn, you're old enough to choose this. And that's the pattern we find throughout the book of Acts. It's always adults who are baptized. And so we at Wooden Hills Church, uh, in the Anabaptist tradition, we, we teach adult baptism. A person has to be old enough to say, I want to marry Jesus. And, and, and to choose that, and to join the body of Christ. We don't deny the significance of infant baptism. We don't want to be, disrespect that. But, but even for those folks who find it very meaningful, what your parents did for you was very meaningful, but we encourage you to own it as your own, and to do that by making a decision to identify with Christ in the waters of baptism. So believers' baptism is the first distinctive. The second one is that the Anabaptists believe that Jesus is our example, uh, he, he's not just our Lord and Savior, he's the, one, he's the paradigm of how we're to live. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. And it may seem that that's pretty commonsensical, but as a matter of fact, it's radical. Very, it, it, the Anabaptists were the only ones who were making this a central point in their age, and, and there's not many people who are, are making that a central point today. Uh, we are all very happy about what Jesus did for us, but we, are, we easily miss the call about how we're to live. See, a lot of folks then, as today, they interpreted salvation by faith alone to mean that you're saved by belief alone. If you believe these things, well, then God will not send you to hell. That's the package. Uh, if you believe Jesus is Lord and Jesus died for you and Jesus rose and blah, blah, then you'll, you're, you're quitted. And the Anabaptists said that is not what the New Testament teaches. Uh, it is true that we're saved by faith alone, but faith is not mere belief. Faith is a covenantal pledge, and it is. And uh, it's a pledge to trust another and a pledge to walk trustworthy towards another. And when you truly have faith, God sends His spirit into you. And that spirit empowers you then and compels us to live like Christ, to follow Christ. And so true faith, the Anabaptists taught, true faith is always reflected in a person's life. Not perfectly, not instantly. We're not automatically sinless. No, God. we always need God's grace. But there's a direction in our life, a direction uh, toward, towards Christ-likeness. And so they taught that that was central, not just in, in, in believing in the cross uh, as, in terms of what it does for you, but the cross as a lifestyle that we're to adopt. We're to live a cruciform life. A life that looks like Jesus, loves like Jesus, serves like Jesus, uh, is humble like, like Jesus. In that passage we read earlier, Matthew twenty nineteen says, "Make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus taught." The goal is to make disciples. It, it's not to make believers. And there's a world of difference between a believer and a disciple. The goal is to make disciples. It's not to, to see how many people you can get to cram into a building uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, the goal is to make disciples, not, not to just have, have people pray the sinner's prayer and, and to check it off on a list of how many people got saved that year. The goal is to make disciples, not, not, not tithers or, or anything of the sort, not religious people. We want to make disciples, and a disciple by definition. By definition, is somebody who puts themselves under the discipline of another. That's what the word disciple means. You're being disciplined by another. So to be a disciple of Jesus means that you're following Jesus. You're striving to live like Jesus. It's also what the, 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 the term Lord means. To call Jesus Lord means that we submit to him. That's the meaning of the word Lord. To call him Lord and not submit to him uh, is, is a contradiction. Oh, I believe Jesus is Lord, but I'm going to live my own life. Well, that's, then the word Lord is meaningless. That's why Jesus at one point said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I teach? What's the point of calling me Lord, Lord, if it doesn't mean that? That's what the word means. He's really saying, you're contradicting yourself if you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I teach. Another point he said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, is going to be in the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Saying it means nothing unless it's reflected in our life. Because the word means that we submit to him. You see, and we don't do that on our own power. It's only by the power of the Spirit. We don't do it perfectly. We always need God's grace, but we're heading in that direction. And so the Anabaptists believe that salvation, we're not saved by works. We're not earning anything. We're not meriting anything. We're not impressing God with anything. But if, there, if the life of God is in us, it shows. To some degree, if you're alive, there's a pulse. If you're alive, there's going to be some breath. If you're alive, there's going to be some brainwaves. So also, if you're alive with the life of God, and that's what salvation is all about, if you're alive with the life of God, well, then there's going to be some kind of spiritual pulse there, some spiritual life. There'll be some visible sign there, and you'll be heading in a certain direction. So the Anabaptists taught that true faith always is reflected in a life that's aspiring towards obedience, and we here within this church believe that. We accept that, and we proclaim that. Which leads then directly to the third distinctive belief. Because we're called to to live like Jesus, he's he's our example. He lived a simple life, so we are called to live a simple life. And if you look at the Anabaptist tradition, uh, it's characterized by this humility and this this simpleness. Um, uh, It's very unadorned. Uh, That's the tradition there. Because Jesus lived like this, this is how we're to live. To live simply means that, that you have a singular focus. Your, your life isn't cluttered with a lot of competing aspirations and a lot of competing desires. Uh, to live simply means you're not cluttered with a lot of things. Grabbing onto to a lot of things. Uh, a, a crucial passage here is 1 John chapter 2, where, where John says, Don't love the world. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do, look at me. It comes not from the Father. It comes from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Ain't that the truth? But whoever does the will of God lives forever. What John is saying there is simply that that if, if you're... If, you're, if the love of God is in your heart, if the love of the Father is in your heart, then the, the life of the Father's in your heart. The fullness of the Father is in your heart. That's what it means to get our life from Christ. And if you're getting your life from Christ, then you don't need to be trying to get full. If you're full uh, from the life of God, you don't need to be trying to get full by the things that the world offers you. If you're full from the life of God, then the world's got nothing to offer you that you don't already have. And so if you're full of the life of God, then you don't need to be loving the world. You don't need to be chasing after riches and chasing after, uh, after fame and fortune and prestige and getting the applause of people or whatever. If you're full of the life of God, then you're free. If you're full of the life of God, then the things of the world, they die to you. you know, and, and you may have them. You may have them. God may bless you with them, but you don't cling to them. You don't need them as a source of life or to feel like life is worth li- living. No, uh, the Anabaptists taught, and we believe at Woodland Hills Church here, we p- proclaim it all the time, that the, at the center of the kingdom is the call to get our life from Jesus Christ and to get our fullness and our self-esteem and our sense of worth and our core sense of security from what God thinks about us as he's declared it on Calvary, that we are worth that, we are that love. And having that, having that life, we can now let go of everything else. Let go of everything else. Just let Let it go. You may have it, but don't cling to it. Don't cling to it. The minute you cling to anything, it clings to you. It starts sucking life out of you. When you try to suck life out of how pretty you are, how smart you are, how wealthy you are, or find your security in, in, in your bank account, and your 401k plan, or, or, or you know, cling to how, how your, your good health and your sexiness or whatever. When you're clinging to it, it's clinging to you and it's sucking life out of you because you're trying to suck life out of it. And the only way to be free of that is to die to it. That's what it means to die to yourself. Yeah, you let it go. You let it go. That's what it is to live simply. If you have it, you have it, but you don't cling to it. And now you're free to give it away if God tells you to give it away. And now you can have a peace that passes understanding because all anxiety comes from hanging on to stuff that you know is going to pass away. All this world with all of its glory is going to pass away. It's just dust, animated dust. That's all it is. Well, live like it's dust now and you're a free person. It's dust. Nothing more than dust. And now you're free. Now you're free. That's what it is to live a, a simple life. You're not chasing after a whole bunch of stuff. And then finally, finally, the fourth and final and certainly the most controversial but I think the most beautiful, distinctive aspect of the Anabaptist tradition is their teaching that we're to love our enemies and to refrain from violence. The Anabaptists understood that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he did it for us, but he also was setting us an example of what we're to do. And the Bible teaches this explicitly over and over again. For example, it says in Peter, Peter says, uh, to this suffering, he's talking to these Christians who are, are being persecuted and facing possible death. Nasty death, like fed the lions kind of death. And so he says, to this suffering you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. And so if we're followers of Jesus and are called to imitate him, and the Bible says that over and over and over again, uh, then, then whether we're executed or not, this is how we're to live. We're, we're to have a cruciform life, a life, life of self-sacrifice. It's at the center of the kingdom. And that entails that we love our enemies. You know, Jesus, when he was facing the cross, he could have called legions of angels, right? Uh, He could have easily defeated his enemies. But he didn't. uh, Because they needed him to die for them. This was his act of love. Um, If he would have called the legions of angels and defeated his enemies and saved himself, uh, he would have been justified, right? That would have been a just thing for him to do. And when Peter cut off the guy's ear in the garden he was justified doing this because his, Jesus' arrest was unjust. So in terms of what's called a just war policy, is war justified? The answer is yes. But for kingdom people who are called to follow Jesus, we don't follow the just war policy, we follow the example of Jesus, and though it was unjust, he chose to rather die for his enemies rather than defend himself against his enemies. And what the Anabaptists saw, and they were the only ones who saw this, is that this is at the center of the gospel. The most distinctive mark of the kingdom person is that you're willing to die uh, rather than use violence to defend yourself or your loved ones. It's the most distinctive aspect of the kingdom. That's why Jesus, when when, when, uh, Pilate asked him, uh, Are you king of the Jews? John 18, 32. Uh, Jesus says, No, my kingdom is not of this world. And then for the proof, he says this. Because if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be fighting right now to defend me. But since they're not, my kingdom obviously is not of this world. See, it's this distinctive mark of a kingdom person. You think about it like this. The most fundamental instinct of our fallen human nature is self-preservation. Uh, we instinctively will do anything, use whatever violence we need to, to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And the most natural thing for us in our fallen human nature is to uh, hate those who are threatening those we love and that which we love. And uh, to retaliate against them and make them pay for whatever wrongs that they've done to us. It's so basic to our fallen human nature, and it feels righteous. We feel righteous uh, acting that way. We feel maybe unrighteous if we don't act that way. And yet, Jesus tells us to crucify that fundamental instinct, that self preservation instinct. And the clearest sign that a person has crucified that self preservation instinct, and, the, and the, the telltale sign that a person has, in fact, got the life of God inside of them so they don't even need to cling to their own life, is that they'd rather die than kill to protect themselves and their loved ones. And this is not a secondary, optional kind of thing. The Anabaptists saw that this is a central, mandatory thing. It's very explicit in the teachings of Jesus. He says this in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's common sense. That's common sense. Everyone does that. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What Jesus is saying here is this. Uh, we are called and empowered by the Spirit to love the way the sun shines and to love the way the rain falls. The sun doesn't choose who it shines on. It just shines indiscriminately. And the rain doesn't choose who it's going to fall on. It just rains indiscriminately. So also, our love is to be indiscriminate. We, when, we follow, when we commit to following Jesus, we lose our right. We crucify the right to choose who we're going to love and not love. And who we're going to act kindly to and who we're not going to act kindly to. We lose that right. We crucify that right because we're called and empowered to follow the one who died on Calvary. We're called to love indiscriminately. And Jesus says, do this so that you may be children of your father in heaven. The mark of a child of God is that the character of God is in you. And since God loves indiscriminately, we love indiscriminately. We're empowered to do that. Or at least that's the direction that we're growing toward. If you're a child of your father, you've got his DNA. Some of his character has been inherited. So also, if you're a child of the Father, Jesus is saying, well, then you'll love like he loves, and he loves like the sun shines, and he loves like the rain falls, you are empowered to go and do likewise. It's radical stuff, and it's as central as can be, that you may be children of the Father. It's even more radical in in, in Luke. Luke records Jesus saying this, but to you who are listening, and that has the connotation of, to those of you who are willing to listen, not just those who hear this, But if you're willing to listen, because frankly, most people aren't, but I'm thankful that you are. And so Jesus says to you who are willing to hear this, get ready. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then four verses later, he comes back and repeats himself. It's that emphatic. But I'm telling you, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Then you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You see, you're reflecting his character. He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So when you're kind to the ungrateful and wicked, you're reflecting the truth that you have His character. We're not kind to the ungrateful and wicked to get him to give us that character. But we're, once he gives us that character, we're kind to the ungrateful and the, 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 the wicked. And it's interesting here that in in Luke, Jesus specifies that we're to do good to our enemies and to bless our enemies. That's why Dirk Willems turned around and saved that guard. You see, there's a long tradition in the the church, going back to St. Augustine, that says that love is nothing more than an inner disposition, and it has no necessary behavioral implications, which allowed people throughout history to Christians to say that you love your enemy even while you're killing them, even while you're torturing them. But here, Jesus makes it very clear. He he cuts off that that little maneuver, and he says, no, to love them means you act in ways that benefit them rather than harm them. And you do this to your enemies. And when Jesus says enemies, this is is what's so crucial for us to lock in. When When he's talking to a Jewish audience in the first century, and he says, love your enemies, the word enemies, everyone Category number one for enemy is the Romans, the Romans, those nasty Romans uh, who have taken over our land, those nasty pagans who are ruling us. The Romans are the terrorists of the day. They, knew, they ruled by terror. That's what the crucifixion was all about. They, they knew how to put terror in the heart of people. And uh, the Romans are the terrorists who, are, who come down and sometimes take away our, 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 our possessions without just cause. Those terrorists who, who abuse us, who take away our freedoms. Those terrorists who sometimes will round up and kill our people just to flex their muscle, to install terror in everybody. In other words, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not just talking about your grouchy mother-in-law and your ordinary grandmother, though it includes them as well. No, when he says enemies, he means those real enemies, the nasty kind of enemies, those dirty enemies. He's talking about the evil people, the evil people who threaten your country and who threaten your, your family and who threaten your lifestyle, those evil people who, who, who want to take away your rights and your freedoms, the, the evil people who drive... Planes into skyscrapers and blow themselves up in markets and kill innocent people. The real nasty, demonic kind of people. Those are the ones we're called to love. Those are the ones we're called to bless. Those are the ones that we're called to pray for. Those are the ones we're called to lend to without expecting anything back. Could anything be more radical than that? See, this, this, this cuts to the core. Uh, it, it feels wrong. It feels immoral. Unless you've crucified yourself. And there's a very different life pulsating in you. This teaching, let's be honest here, unless you've thoroughly crucified yourself, uh, we hate this teaching. It leaves us vulnerable. Uh, It means we have to totally trust God. And we have to be willing to die. Uh, We have to crucify that sense of righteousness that we have in retaliating against another. Um, uh, And this is why the Anabaptists were so hated. They were the group that everyone loved to hate. Because if they're right, then, then these other Christians who are Routinely killing people are wrong, and no one likes to be wrong, especially when you preserve power by being right. And, and so they, 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 they hated the Anabaptists for, for teaching this. It's, it's, there's a part of us that just feels so righteous using violence, if necessary, to protect us and our loved ones and our country and, and whatever, and it feels cowardly, unpatriotic, wimpy, immoral to not do that. And yet, here it is, right there in Scripture, Here's the thing, this is, I believe, this teaching on loving our enemies uh, and, and refraining from violence, it is, it is the, the most, I think it's the clearest teaching in the New Testament. It's never qualified, it's never compromised, it's never anything. It's, it's as clear and unequivocal as could be. It's also the single most ignored teaching of the New Testament. Hardly ever taught. Uh, and it's why whenever we teach this at Willow Church, I, I, I often get people very angry. I, I meet very, very, very angry people uh, responding to this. I'm so glad that we're not in the 16th century. I would have been burned by now. I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm telling you, I, I've met some people and they, they look at me and it's like, whoa, you'd, you'd burn me alive right now if you could. Um, but, you know, they, 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 there's an anger that is there. And um, uh, it's why whenever we teach this, we often have people leave the church and not come back. Um, But, you know, it's like, it happens. And we're okay with that because we believe with the Anabaptists that we're called to make disciples. We're not called to be as big as possible. We're not called to keep religious consumers happy. We're not called to, you know, just impress anybody and and, and get our offerings up as high as possible. We're called to make disciples. And we're called to be willing to pay any price that we need to pay to do that. And so we do it. We're just going to say it straight. We're going to preach it. Amen, amen. Thank you. Uh, and and uh, I, I so appreciate folks who, uh, it, it, this is radical. We've got to wrestle with this, but I appreciate you listening to it. And even if you're right now, your buzzers are being triggered and you're really angry at me, we bless you and love you too, but uh, I hope you don't have a gun. Okay, we've got time for one question, I think. I got, we got time for one. There are some pretty violent images of Jesus in Revelation. How do we reconcile those images with the examples set by Jesus in the Gospels? Yes. Okay. Uh, I will, in about uh, a year, have... You know, and I, I want to... Maybe we should put it on a website or something. I wrote a chapter uh, on this very question, and it will be coming out as the, in the appendix of this book I'm doing on violence in uh, the, the Old Testament God. Uh, but here's the thing. And, and we, I'll find a way to get it out before then, because this is so important. Because people often use the, the violent images of Jesus in the book of Revelation to now throw out all the stuff we find in the Gospels. Where here Jesus is contradicting himself. You know, where, Love your enemies, and then comes up and slaughters everybody in the end. Uh, and so it's, if he can do it, we can do it. You know? But here's the thing. See, the book, the book of Revelation, it, it is. It's got graphic, violent images. But it's so brilliant. And there's a lot of scholars who are saying this, by the way. Because if, if you read it carefully, he takes traditional... Old Testament images and apocalyptic images of the time, which are all violent, and he turns them on their head. To mean the opposite of what they originally meant. So for example, the lion shows up. The lions in the jungle go, thank you Lord. Like we sang a little earlier. People who are watching my podcast who didn't see the kids sing would be pretty puzzled right now. (laughs) He obviously didn't take his medications. But see, the lion shows up. Roar. But then the lion turns out to be a lamb. And then the mighty warrior shows up. All right? With a sword. You're going to slaughter everybody. Ah. But the sword comes out of his mouth. And there's a whole lot of bloodshed. Revelation 19 is the most violent chapter in the Bible. All his blood everywhere. The, the, the warrior Jesus shows up and he's soaked in blood. If I read it carefully. Uh, the sword comes out of his mouth. And the blood, he's got on him before he goes into battle. Read it. Yeah, there's bloodshed, but it's his own blood. And the battle, the slaying that he does, he, slay, he does by the word of his mouth. And the, the followers of Jesus, uh, over and over in the book of Revelations, the followers of the Lamb, they follow him wherever he goes. And they do warfare and they conquer, right? But how do they conquer? By the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And that phrase, blood of the lamb, is, is not just referring to the lamb bleeding for us, but by our willingness to do likewise. And so it's the martyrs who are victorious. We win by losing. We win by being slaughtered. And so I would argue that the book of Revelation is a violently anti-violent book. <laughs> <laughs> he takes the violent images and he completely subverts them. It's subversive literature. Uh, it's a manual on how to do nonviolent warfare. It's, it's Okay, so we'll, we'll post that here uh, some way. I know they're coming out in the book. Yeah, we can't wait till next year for crying out loud, we got to do it now. <laughs> I thought infant baptism was supposed to protect children that die from going, from going to hell. Why do we do infant baptisms to protect children? Thank you for that question. Yeah, see, uh, it, it, around the time of St. Augustine in the uh, late fourth and early fifth century, they began to teach a thing called original sin. I, and I believe in original sin in the sense that we're born into a fallen world. Uh, and that it it's all screwed up, and even our natures are screwed up. But they were teaching that you're actually born, if you're a descendant of Adam, you're born guilty. And so, and then they began to teach that baptism washes away that original sin. And so if, if you're a little baby and you die before you're baptized, then you go to hell. Um, I remember in, in second grade, in Catholic school, getting this teaching, and it so disturbed me. I, I just, It was like, What? Uh, and and I, I remember I got I got really mad, and the nun explained to me saying, "Well, okay, it's 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 the uh, least miserable part of hell. They called it limbo. Which they they just did away with this a couple years ago. But they said it's it's uh, but they, they can't be with their parents. So I asked, can they be with their parents? And the nun said no. And I got this picture of these little babies in like this room outside of heaven, looking in at their parents, wanting to get to their parents and not able to. And then I thought, well, the parents must be looking at the kids. And how can that be heaven if your kids over there? And what kind of God would damn a little baby to hell for being born? Shame on you for being born. It's so your fault. You know, it's just, you, go to, you pay eternally, a baby born lasts, you know, two minutes, and then you spend eternity suffering because you're born in those two minutes. I, I, I can't, but that was the, the teaching. Um, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. I don't see in this idea. We're, we are born with, with this, this, we're born screwed up. I mean, that's true. Uh, and, and it is, there's proclivity but I don't think we're ever guilty of sin until we actually act on our proclivities and, um, uh, and there's no more original sin to, to wash away Jesus I let the children come unto me I think he's still saying that you know? so uh, I, I encourage you to, to not worry about that I, I, we always get this folks who are worried, so worried about their babies uh, you know what God loves those babies God, God loves the baby more than you do uh, and you wouldn't send your baby to eternal hell for being born. Uh, God wouldn't do that. Find like a good picture of, of, of what God looks like. Look on Cal, Look at Calvary. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. If Jesus wouldn't do it, don't accuse God of doing it. Um, and Jesus never tortured little babies. All right. So far as I know. Uh, is, is self-defense an act of violence? For example, if a murderer is after me or my family, is it loving to just let them kill me or my family? Thank you. Thank you. Look at, And this is always the, the, the crucial question. Um, there's a, a book by John Howard Yoder called What Would You Do? And uh, I would encourage it. It's a real thin little book, and uh, it, it just addresses this, this question uh, in ways that I, don't, I won't be able to get into uh, here in the next two minutes. But let me just say this. Uh, I'll say two things. First, l- let me grant for the sake of argument that I, I would say that... Uh, if someone broke into my house tonight and was going to murder my family uh, or kill me and my children, um, I, I might resort to whatever violence I needed to, to, uh, to defend myself. I hope I wouldn't because I know that that's not, Jesus commanded me not to, but I might. And I might even grant that this doesn't make any sense. Let's just grant that it doesn't make any sense. But see, here's the thing. You can do one of two things. You either will say, well, look at it. Since obviously we should use whatever violence is necessary to protect ourselves and our loved ones, since that's, since that's obvious, Jesus couldn't have meant that, and Paul couldn't have meant that, and Peter couldn't have meant that when they taught that in the Bible. So they must mean something else. We don't know what they mean, but they couldn't mean that. And since we know that that wasn't included by the teachings, well then, well, if I should protect my family uh, from, from, from uh, e- evil people, well then, shouldn't I protect a stranger from evil people? I mean, because I'm supposed to love the stranger too. And so now, all of a sudden, we, we can use violence to, to defend our country or defend anything that we think is just, which is exactly St. Augustine's position. And now you're believing in exactly what everybody believes. <laughs> Being a Christian, now, now the enemy is reduced to the grumpy mother-in-law or the ornery grandma. Uh, you know, and, and so what's distinctive about that? Jesus is aware that this violates our common sense because he says, you've heard it said. You know, everybody loves their, their, their loved ones and hates their enemies. I'm giving you something new. It's radical. It's crazy. Look what I'm going to do. Follow my example. It is crazy. But see, here's the thing. If a teaching, if if something that's commonsensical to me contradicts what Jesus in the uh, the New Testament teaches, I have to assume there's something wrong with me. And so maybe, since this hardly ever happens to people, we take this most extreme case and then we argue backwards to work ourselves completely out of the teaching. I, I encourage people to start at the other end of things. Let's assume Jesus is right. And let's practice loving our enemies every day all right, Uh, day by day. And maybe over time, in fact, I'm certain over time because I'm beginning to experience it myself. As we love our enemies, pray for our enemies, bless our enemies, the nasty ones, the evil ones, the kind that drive uh, planes into skyscrapers, as we love them day in and day out, it changes us. And maybe in 20 years, I'll actually see the the sense that this makes. But I'm not going to assume that I'm right and and therefore Jesus couldn't mean what he obviously said. Uh, Work the other way around. Having said that, I'll say one last word. And that is this. To say that we should not act violently towards a person. The word the of the word, the word means to violate. Violence is violate. Anything that violates the worth of a person uh, is, is, is violence. And so I am commanded to not act in any way that would violate his worth. Now, his worth is unsurpassable because Jesus died for him. So I, I don't have the right to take his life. Um, I, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do nothing. No, see, here's the thing. There's a trillion things we can do to get in the way, to protect uh, people from, from evil folks. Trillions of things. But if we're, we're so conditioned by this violent world that we go for the gun. As if the gun makes us safer when there's a ton of studies that show that if you bring a gun into a situation to protect yourself, you've just upped the poker game significantly, and now the odds of some violent, uh, fatal violence happening has, has, has just you know, quadrupled. Uh, we saw an example of this in St. Paul just here last year. It would have been just a robbery, but now it becomes a murder because the guy brought a gun down. And, oh, you want to play guns? Well, if this guy knows something. It, you should have gun better than you do. And boom, uh, now, now there's a fatality involved. But having said that, there, there's a, we're conditioned to think that the options are either do nothing or uh, try to kill the guy. As a matter of fact, there's a ton of things we can do. And see, if we, if we commit to loving our enemies at all costs... Uh, and and we, if we practice that, that, it gives us a wisdom to see things we otherwise wouldn't see. When we're freed from our... When we, when we genuinely can love the enemy, not just as a rule, but it's, it's genuinely there, then the guy who breaks in the house, it's as, as though my own son broke in the house. And that's going to affect how I'll respond. I've, I won't let my son do just... My son's a murderer. I'm not going to let him do it. But I also, am not going to try to kill him because I love my son. And we're also to love our enemies. And so there's a wisdom that we can have about this. If, that, that we'll see if we're not going for the gun. But if that's the option, then we go for the gun uh, right off the bat and we miss the wisdom of, of, of in between. We're responding to the evil the way Jesus responds to evil. And he does it by being willing to bleed. Will be, by putting himself in harm's way. By dying for his enemies and blessing them. All right, chew on this, chew on this. Um, I'm going uh, right. to, thanks for not being mad at me. And if you are mad at me, I still love you college is the most controversial aspect of the Anabaptist tradition, but it's why, I, it's the only tradition without blood on its hands, and it's why I, I, I uh, relate, I, I align with this tradition more than any other tradition, I, I, and Hills, whether you know or not, we're mostly Anabaptists, so yeah, there you go, uh, it's a beautiful tradition, if, if salvation requires discipleship, then how did the robber on the cross next to Jesus get his salvation, thank you, beautiful question, okay, this question, I, I, I suspect, is reflecting uh, a, a court of law context. I, I, I suspect that the, the person asking the question, and God bless you, but I, you're thinking of discipleship as some, something that you, sort of the precondition for you getting acquitted, or the precondition for you to keep the judge happy with you, or it's some kind of a rule that you go through. That would be salvation by works. And then, then I, I wouldn't be able to explain how the thief on the cross could possibly be saved. But discipleship isn't a requirement for salvation like that. Discipleship is a, a requirement for salvation in the sense that it's a necessary consequence of the faith that is essential for salvation. It's, it's like this. Um, uh, if I genuinely love my wife, I will do, do nice things for her. Right? Right? I, but I don't do nice things so that she'll love me or stay married to me. Like, gosh, if I don't do this, she won't stay married to me. But, if I, but, she, but we, we are married only because I love her and she loves me. And the result of that, if it's genuine love, it has behavioral implications. So behavioral implications, the behavior is necessary to be married. But they're not necessary to get married. They're necessary because you are married. So also, genuine faith produces behavioral results. Now, the case of the thief on the cross... Wasn't a whole lot of time for there to be much behavioral results. <laughs> Although I bet he died better than he would have otherwise died. Uh, but uh, uh, it, had he been able to get up across, I'm sure his life would have slowly begun to change and be transformed uh, in, in different ways. But uh, thanks for asking that. Yeah, it's required, not in the sense of earning, just in the sense of manifesting uh, the reality that is already there. Thanks. Another question What's the difference, the difference between desiring something in this world and loving something in this world? How can I tell the difference when buying a home, car, clothes, or other things? Really good question. And and the, really good question. And this is a question, I think, that, that is, is the kind of thing that, that kingdom people have to live in. I mean, this is a live-in question. It's not a kind of question, it's not an information question where you could just, like, get a formula for, for answering this. It's the kind of question you can only, uh, you've got to live in it. Now, there's, there's things you could look for and questions you can ask yourself, uh, I would recommend something like this. And, and all these kind of questions, remember, everything in the community is meant to be done. I, everything in the kingdom is meant to be done in community. And so it's good to have a community of people where you ask yourself these questions. Am I clinging to this? Um, and you ask yourself questions like this. Uh, if, if, if this was taken away from me, I, I do a, like a subtraction exercise in my mind or in my heart. If this were to leave me, what would the result be? If I lost the house or lost the talent, or, you know, lost the, the friend, or whatever. What is left? And try to be honest about this and have other people speak into it. How has this gotten to the core of who I am? See, I can really love a car or love a house. But if I'm holding on to it rightly, well, I'm not holding on to it at all. I, I, I'm enjoying it as it's on loan. And so when it's taken from me, I may go, oh, you know, I really love that. But it will leave me the same person. I'll be essentially the same person in terms of my core identity and worth and significance and fullness as I was before I lost it. And so I encourage people uh, to... I have a kind of exercise that I've done once in a while where I I just represent the different aspects of my life. Everything from my my family to my possessions to my time and talent uh, and things I love to do. And I represent it in my mind and I envision it in some way and ask the Holy Spirit to help you with this being taken from you. And then ask the question, once it's taken from you, uh, is this enough? Uh, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? I wrote a piece on this last year. It was in the Christian Chronicle called The River. Uh, and it was about a, a kind of a dream I had, a vision I had when I was uh, wrestling with this, this, this kind of an issue. Um, I'm not sure I could get a hold of it, but it's about putting, putting your belongings on a river and letting it float down. And then asking, is Jesus enough? Is, is, is he your source of life? Very good question. But you've got to live in it, and you've got to re-ask it every day. Uh, or, you know, at least very frequently. Because um, we have a tendency to let go of things and then we start clinging to them again. Live with open palms. Okay, let's do one more. Uh, I understand not being violent towards enemies, but how do, you, how do we love people that want to abuse and manipulate us? Can we avoid them and still love them? Thank you. Thank you for asking that. There's so many nuances like this that you can't cover in a, in a short... You know, you just got to hit the center point and then hope that people will get the nuances. Because, see, here, here someone could take that teaching... And, and I've, in fact, I've known people who say, Oh, I've got to suffer for Jesus' sake, and then they let their husband abuse them. Ah, I'm just going to stay in the marriage because I'm supposed to suffer for Jesus' sake. But see, here's the thing. That's not loving to you or to your husband. Uh, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, And I am thinking that probably applies to our spouse. Um, by staying in an abusive relationship, you're not ascribing worth to yourself. You're really saying, I deserve to be treated like this. I'm worth this kind of treatment. Uh, and that's not godly. Uh, you know, you're, you're God's pre- precious child. How would you like it if your precious child was being abused by somebody? That's how God feels. Uh, he, 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 he puts infinite value on you. You have to live in a way that reflects that. And letting someone beat you up or even just treat you like, like a, the household pet is not ascribing worth to you. Uh, but you're also not ascribing what to your husband. Letting any human being think that this is okay is, is inhumane. Uh, you're, you're letting them think that this is, this, is, this is okay to get away with this. And there's no consequences for this. No, the loving thing to do is not, not to kill him. Uh, that would be contrary to Christ's teaching. Or even hitting him over the head with a baseball bat. I, I wouldn't recommend that, that either. Uh, but to ask, what is a lo- what's a loving way? What can you do? I always ask this in community with others. How, what can you do that reflects uh, your worth to you, but also uh, maybe has a chance of helping him? This guy see that this is not how you treat human beings. And um, you know, among other things, I would think that confronting him and then confronting him with several others who he might listen to, and saying this has got to stop, or here are the consequences. And and you do an intervention. You say this, this no more of this. And um, if, if if it persists. Uh, then there may come a point where you have to say, I love you, but I have got to for your sake and my sake leave. And maybe for the child's sake, because it's not doing the child a whole lot of good to be seeing this going on. They're just installing the same pattern. And there comes a time when love does have to walk away. Love isn't flowery or fluffy and always nice. Love sometimes has got to get big in and, and, and people's face, and, and, and sometimes it's got to walk away. Uh, so don't feel guilty about doing that. Um, it just means love never acts in a way where you are intending uh, to fatally harm another person. Um, it always seeks to benefit them. It says that sometimes to benefit them, you've got to walk away from them. Excellent. Thanks for those great questions. I, 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 I love them. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, As I do, I like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to uh, come up here and pray with these folks. The body needs to minister to the body and do not carry those burdens alone. Uh, If you are willing, we really could use help in the children's ministry this this summer. uh, Please consider uh, signing up and and, uh, whatever time you can give, we would very much appreciate it because we hate to turn people away. And uh, the party this Friday at at O'Gara's, if you want to come and have some fun. All right, Abba Father, Thank you for being the outrageously beautiful God that you are and calling us and empowering us to be an outrageously beautiful people who, Lord, live in contradiction to our common sense and the fundamental instinct of our our age and and crucify our self-preservation instinct to love our enemies. Lord, grow us in this area. Holy Spirit, grow us to be a people who who genuinely uh, reflect a different attitude towards our national and personal enemies. Who genuinely pray for our national and personal enemies. Who genuinely love our national and personal enemies. A people who stand out for their outrageous love. To this you have called us. To this you empower us. And Lord, as we leave this place, we submit our lives to you and say, Come Holy Spirit, blow through us in marvelous, loving, outrageous ways. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's Lamb people said. God bless you guys. Love you. Go and spread love on the world.